0: I wanted a wide field instrument, and that's a very interesting design problem. I met Rick and Jason and Joe. uh, That's Rick Hedrick, the CEO of PlaneWave. Jason Fournier and uh, Joe Haberman, all of which are, we're all co-owners, along with Kevin Iyot of PlaneWave instruments. And our friendship took off immediately from there, and we we actually decided to make a 42-inch telescope, kind of the largest amateur-built telescope in the world. And that was actually the first uh, CDK in the world, and it was a 42-inch. It, I worked with the guys at Celestron from the early 2000s um, doing many things. They loved telescopes too at Celestron, um, the guys that I knew. And We were always talking about, you know, what's the best way to do something or another. And I was in their office and they wanted to have a wide field, fast astrograph.
1: That is David Rowe. He's our guest today. He's the CTO of Plane Wave Instruments and he's also the R (laughs) in the Celestron's Rasa instrument, which many of you are already familiar with. So if you are interested in optical design and how some of the best telescopes used in amateur astronomy came to be, then this is the episode for you. So let's get started. in telescopes and accessories.
2: So Dave, this is this is one I've been looking forward to uh, a really long time, actually. Big, big fan of um, your work, and I think there are a lot of fans, especially on the imaging side of the work that you've done. And so, you know, we just want to kind of dig into that story a little bit and ask you, you know, how that interest developed that led you to all of this, and how some of these these designs came to be, so right. um, let's
0: let's dig in. Well, thanks for the invitation. Uh, I really appreciate it, and it's wonderful to have a chance to talk to you guys about it and to your audience. So, well, you know, as a as a young kid, I was deeply interested in astronomy, like many of your listeners, I'm sure, will be, and. Um, I had a telescope as a child, a department store refractor, a little one, and I discovered how to focus it kind of by accident and, you know, the story goes on from there. And by the time I was in high school, I was very interested in optics and I bought a very small Edmund scientific uh, reflector telescope. I think it was a six inch uh, F8 I oh, I think I
1: had that one. I loved yeah,
0: that it. Yeah, <laughs> it was totally the most beautiful thing I think I ever had in the world. <laughs> uh, um, how old was I? I don't know. I was maybe 14. Um, I remember when it arrived, still very clearly. And it was on a little German equatorial mount that had a clock drive, and uh, it was super fun. And I mounted a camera on it and did some, what do we call it, piggyback uh, photography, with it, and on Tri-X, uh, Trix, I think. Do you remember Tri-X? Are you old yes, enough? Yes, I sure yeah. do.
1: Oh, oh my god! I Damon, don't, I don't even you, know. What man, you're we go way about.
0: back. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> yeah, D- Dustin's like what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Tri-X. I learned how to. I learned how to develop the film in you know my basement. Uh, I lived in Michigan at the time, so I went to college in Bowling Green. Uh, State University in Ohio and with a bachelor's degree in physics and mathematics. And during that period, I did more astrophotography and I built some instrumentation and got kind of deeply interested again in astronomy. And there was an old like 10-inch mirror in the closet in the physics department. And I pulled it out and asked one of the professors you know, what, what was going on with this? And he said, oh, there was a guy and he never finished it. So I built a Foucault tester. I went back to, do you remember uh, Sky and Telescope had a column for many years? Was it Bob Cox? Was his mm, name? That
1: name sounds familiar. Yeah. So For amateur for, for telescope making?
0: Yeah. The ATM yeah. crowd. Yeah. So yeah. I went back yeah. to, to that stuff and I looked all through it and I found out how to build a Foucault tester. And I built what is one a actually tester. finished Sorry to
2: interrupt. I think your vocabulary is a little more extended than mine. What? It's, it's a way to test the, mirror, the
1: figure on the telescope. It's a way to see what kind of curve you've got. Okay. Yeah,
0: okay. it's a very simple tester. It's, it's kind of an ingenious device. Uh, one of the many things that Foucault uh, did in his career. Uh, it, it's a basically a, a light and a razor blade. And you stick that in front of the mirror at the radius of curvature of the mirror. And as you cut into the beam of light that's returned from the mirror, um, you get this pattern of shadows that you can um, interpret after a while. Uh, and, and you can discover the figure of the mirror by doing so. So I worked that all out. and um, But before I could build an actual telescope around it, I left and went to uh, Caltech um, here in Southern California. And I spent two years at Caltech and developed some hardware for uh, X-ray astronomy. I was working on a proportional gamma ray detector that was going to go on a spacecraft. But for various reasons, I left after two years. One of them was we sent the instrument that i had worked on we sent it to uh, white sands on for their shaker table to shake it to see if it would survive launch and one of the welds broke and then the whole thing kind of self destructed and they they told me there were pieces flying all over the the oh, laboratory no. so That's heartbreaking! Not, was not was not <laughs> oh. going to make the launch so uh. So glad you can laugh about it it now. It came back back in a box that kind of looked like a coffin, to tell you the truth. So we (laughs) opened it up and there was, you know, the spacecraft uh, uh, hardware and so forth. Anyway, it was a kind of a bad story. So that and a lot of other things. I left, you know, for a year, but I never returned, um, as many people do. I, I got a job in... Uh, aerospace I'm still looking equipment. for you,
1: man. You should have let them know. <laughs> They're like, where's
0: Dave? Where the hell's Dave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't weld it together, you know. Yeah. The, yeah. That's an interesting story about technology. The, the welder did a perfectly fine job, but he re- used the wrong gas. You can e- use either helium or argon. And he used the wrong one, whichever it was. And that caused the welds to be weak. And, you know, it's little things like that you have to pay lots of attention to.
1: I bet he's not a contractor anymore for spacecraft. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't take many shake test explosions. For them to say, you might not be our guy. Yeah, because
1: career, careers are built on spacecraft, you know. It takes that long to get them up in the yeah, in the exactly. space. And so, yeah. wow, well, that's a real yeah, tragic we're... story, actually. This guy's well, using you know, Argon again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Argon Steve, here he comes. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs>
0: okay, so... so At Caltech, I had a great time. I was in the physics department, and I spent a few months during the winter of, I don't know, 78 to 79, I think, at Mount Wilson um, doing some experimentation on the 60-inch. It wasn't my program or anything. I was just kind of a helper, but that kind of relit the fire for astronomy. It's a beautiful telescope, has a great history, and... um, you know, in my opinion, it may be one of the most important things in our scientific progress. Uh, Agreed. That led us to a lot of questions, which we eventually answered with the hundred-inch, the two hundred-inch, and then the the large telescopes on uh, in Hawaii and so forth.
2: So, Dave, did you watch? Did you watch this week as all of that was threatened by fire?
0: Oh God, I was terrified. Uh, I, I
2: was just sick to my stomach for days on end. Oh, they watching. got that close, did they? The fires. Oh, oh, you could see the flames in the in the cameras, the live cameras from Mount Wilson just creeping right up next to it. It was it was hard to watch. But they're okay now? It
0: got within 500 feet of the monastery, which is yeah. okay. Anyway, it's uh I think that's past. So I think yeah, it, it lived through another one.
2: Oh, yeah. good. So Mount Wilson did it for you then. And that well, said, it, on the, the it, next it certainly
0: it. rekindled the desire to do um, astronomy, and I love telescopes. So to make a long story short, after a very long career in the aerospace industry and designing integrated circuits and starting my own uh, electronics company and so forth, I ended up, and I think it was 95. When was Hayu the comet. Do you remember? might've been 95 or, and then hale was after that in 96. And so I started down the road of building telescopes again, and I wanted a wide field instrument. And that's a very interesting design problem. So I wrote my own ray tracing program, which actually is still in use. And I went off and tried to design a well-corrected wide field instrument. And again, I turned, I think, to Sky and Telescope and, uh, and the ATM column. And I found a well corrected uh, hyperbolic astrograph and I actually made one. I made a couple of other telescopes during that time. This was mid 90s, I think. One thing led to another. I made a beautiful medium format slevo camera. It's a concentric Schmidt Cassegrain design. It has a Schmidt corrector plate so I learned how to make that and so forth and it i put a hasselbod uh, i love how you say
1: oh i just learned how to make a schmidt corrector plate it's all stories like that yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) so i did that and then (laughs) that's that's a big deal you know that's what that's what caught that's what gave birth to celestron right was they figured out how to make a a schmidt casting grain corrector plate that was i guess mass producible right that was a big technological
0: it was nice they're not easy to make his name was Tom Johnson. He started Celestron Pacific Corporation. And he figured out how to make corrector plates by pulling them down onto a block that he had prefigured. Very clever guy. I met him once uh, in 2005. He's a remarkable man. So I made, a, I made that nine and a quarter, nine and a half inch Slovote uh, medium format um, astrograph. And I had a lot of fun with it, but I learned a lot about the problems of doing astrophotography um, and collimating telescopes and so forth. So I ran into a guy who knew another guy, who knew a guy at El Camino College called Perry Hacking. And Perry was uh, the professor of astronomy there. And he had a telescope making class in the basement of the mathematics uh, building. And I showed up one day. Um after calling him. And I met Rick and Jason and Joe. Uh, that's Rick Hedrick, the CEO of PlainWave. Jason Fournier and uh, Joe Haberman, all of which are, we're all co-owners along with Kevin Iatt of PlainWave Plain Wave, uh, Instruments. And our friendship took off immediately from there. And we uh, to make a long story short, we actually decided to make a 42-inch telescope, kind of the largest amateur-built telescope in the world. I imagine this was 97. And Perry had a design. Perry was the leader, and he had a design that was a F3, I think. Yeah, F3 primary with a wide field uh, wind corrector. But he looked into buying the wind corrector and it was very expensive. So I came up with, after asking them a bunch of questions over lunch one day in a Chinese restaurant, I came up with a design on my Ray Trace program that I liked very much, which eventually became the CDK, uh, which stands for Corrected, Dal Kirkham telescope. And we adopted that design after a lot of discussion and they, you know, looked at the ray tracing and uh, we talked about it for months. And that was actually the first uh, CDK in the world. And it was a 42 inch. We made it and it's still the largest, I think, CDK in the world. We've made two uh, one meter telescopes, but nothing as big as a 42 inch. So,
2: yeah, I, I was going to stop you there when you said that. I mean, I know you said to make a, a long story short, but but that's that's one hell of a, one thing led to another statement where you're like, well, we decided to make a scope, so we made a 42-inch CDK. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, huge. you know,
0: that's that one thing does lead to another. You know, you have to have uh, great friends and great companions in life, or you partners, or you, you know, you can't do anything alone Mm -hmm. uh, that's of any consequence. So these guys were very enthusiastic. And uh, Rick and I used to, as we were grinding mirrors um, and teaching students how to do the Foucault test and, you know, figure mirrors in the basement of the math building, we would talk for hours about the perfect telescope. And it was kind of our big love and our big dream to build uh, the perfect telescope in every way. And uh, as I said, one thing led to another. Perry had a a dream of building a really big uh, Dobsonian. And we took a look at the problem of a 42-inch F3, and you need a ladder that's like eight feet tall. Mm -hmm. If you do a Newtonian focus, if it's a standard Newtonian telescope with a wind corrector. So I said, Perry, uh, I'll never get, I'm afraid of heights, man. I'll never get on the top of that ladder to look through the damn thing. Why don't we bring it down to a, use a a third mirror in the system and bring it down to a tertiary focus. In other words, a, a focus that's close to the altitude axis. And so we decided to do that. And we were a lot younger and we were, you know, maybe we didn't know a lot about what we were doing, but we had the enthusiasm.
2: Well, it's incredible because now I would say that people in the imaging community globally know the CDK and it's, it's synonymous. It's, it's, you know, anytime you hear that, you think of the best images in the world being taken because most of the best images in the world, you know, being produced are often with CDK design. Um, for one thing, it makes, it's accessible, um, to people that don't want to spend a really long time tinkering because there are other great designs out there, but collimation is so easy on a CDK compared to something like an RC, um, that people are just immediately successful with them. Yeah. And I think that's why it has such a cult following. I, I'm myself, I use a CDK, I use a Wave CDK, uh, 17, in my observatory, my very first observatory, it was the scope I chose to put out there because of that, I could get all of the quality without a lot of the headache. and um, it's you know it's done extremely well because of that, but it's fascinating that it started with such a simple concept and and really just out of necessity to not have to buy a big wind corrector.
0: Well, that was part of it. Uh, but you see, I had spent a lot of time trying to collimate that Slavote astrograph. And mm-hmm. I realized uh, how difficult collimation can be. And I learned a lot about uh, that aspect of telescopes by, you know, the hard knocks in the field trying to do it. And I, do you know Tony Hallis? Yes. Yeah, of course. So in the late 90s or mid, mid to late 90s he was really probably the best astrophotographer one of the best anyway on the planet and he was a very innovative and creative guy I thought and did some great work with film and so forth so um, I was a friend of Tony and I drove up to Ohi. he had a house up there and we spent a enjoyable afternoon in his backyard talking about telescopes and so forth And he had an RC at the time, and for at least an hour, we discussed the difficulties that he had in collimating that RC. And I had never really studied an RC at all. I mean, of course, I knew what it was, but I had never thought about the actual process of collimation. You've got to center the secondary, you know, on the optical axis of the primary to about a millimeter accuracy and you've got to get the tip and tilt perfect. And then you've got the problem of the focal plane tilt uh, induced by tilts in the primary mirror. So you've got a lot of
2: stuff to worry about, frankly. And camera tilt, right? Sensor tilt. Camera
0: tilt. You've got, you know, secondary centration and, You've got secondary tip and tilt, and so on and so forth. And after thinking about this for some amount of time and doing some um, numerical work on the computer, ray tracing, and so forth, I realized that you know either you build a telescope that never has to be collimated, uh, or which you know may in fact be possible, or you. Make sure that it's easy. So what would make it easy, I figured, was a spherical secondary. Because a spherical secondary doesn't have an optical axis. It has only a center of curvature, right? And so taking that and this desire to uh, bring the Newtonian down to an accessible, this big, you know, 42-inch Newtonian down to an accessible focus, um, I tried a bunch of ray tracing designs um, and found that if I moved the corrector back to a nice place uh, where you, you could easily mount it, that you could, in fact, have a spherical secondary. And I found out that that was called a Dal Kirkham, uh, a Cassegrain with a spherical secondary is a Dal So. I called it a corrected Dal Kirkham.
2: Yeah, I mean that that makes sense, and I think that even though it's a it's a simple idea that that spherical secondary is the genius behind the CDK, right? It's like it makes it so easy that you're just eliminating variables from that very complex equation of collimation and centering of something like an RC. And RCs are very they're phenomenal designs; they're great telescopes, um, but getting them set up can be a challenge and it can definitely be time consuming, but that spherical secondary, uh, secondary makes all the difference in the world. I mean, collimation is, it, it was as simple in my observatory as just defocusing a star, making 30 second adjustments to my secondary and I'm done for good because it <laughs> yeah. holds collimation.
1: That's, that's okay. correct. Can, can you guys help me understand something then? So I always thought that a castle grain had spherical surfaces throughout. Um so a Cassegrain had a spherical primary and a spherical secondary and but they would not focus <clears throat> without the corrector plate which gave you a Schmidt Cassegrain. Do I have that wrong?
0: Yeah, unfortunately it's not anywhere near that simple, Tony. So Okay. The way it goes is this. A that there's three or four types of Cassegrain telescopes which are two mirror system optical systems. And the most popular one is the richie uh, cretian at least the most popular one before the corrected cdk because it doesn't have off axis coma so on axis all of these castagrands are perfect but that's a tiny region in the center of the focal plane okay the off axis performance of a telescope kind of determines whether it makes a good ast- astrograph or not. So let me run you through the, t- the types. The, the Pressman-Karmap Michael has a spherical primary and a highly corrected secondary. When I say corrected, it means very far from a spherical surface. The Dalkirkum has a spherical secondary and a elliptical primary, which is way between a sphere and a parabola. And that produces a perfect on-axis image, but a crummy off-axis image. The ritchie cretien has a hyperbolic primary and a hyperbolic secondary, so two surfaces that are very far from a sphere. And the off-axis performance suffers only from astigmatism and field curvature. It doesn't have coma, so it's a coma-free field. And the astronomers liked that because even though the stars at the edge were blobs because because of field curvature and astigmatism, they could still measure their centers uh, very easily. And therefore, it became popular in the professional astronomy community.
1: So if a dahl kirkham has a an elliptical primary, a spherical secondary, what is the corrected dahl kirkham then?
0: Right. So to get rid of this bad stuff off-axis, which all of the Cassegrins have naturally, you add a corrector called a focal plane corrector. It's a corrector that's nearer the focal plane than the secondary mirror. And... I fooled around with that design a lot and found one that I liked. Um, and you have to be careful about ghosting and other things. You did this
1: with your ray tracing, right? You with just with my you, ray tracing, program. right? You wanted to see how these image planes would work out in various scenarios.
0: That's right. So it turns out that with two pieces of uh, with two lenses, I was going to say two pieces of glass, but okay. So with two well-made lenses near the focal plane, you can completely correct a Delkirkum to be diffraction limited across a very wide uh, field of view, and so that's what I did. I looked at all of the ways that I could position that corrector and um, make it with two elements or three elements and so forth, and discovered Um, A nice design that had uh, essentially perfect images across a wide field of view, across, you know, from basically 400 nanometers to 900 nanometers.
1: And this was located, this correction was done close to the image plane, you said?
0: Yeah, it's done about um, anywhere from 6 to 12 inches from the image plane, which is a convenient place, of course, to mount it.
1: Sure, and it's also you don't need really big optics there either. Yeah. All right. So, what sort of um what's the op, what do you, do, does what the optics is it just quartz or or does it matter what you've made the the, the glass out of? These are refractive elements, I assume, right? So These
0: are me. lenses, they're refractive yeah. elements, and they right. c- they typically we would make them from a glass called BK7, which is Okay, more so it's just there. standard
1: stuff, yeah. standard
0: stuff, yeah.
1: Yeah, okay. And no, do you have to worry about coatings or anything on those?
0: Of course you do. We, You know, you always multi-coat um, the lenses to make sure that the reflections are minimized.
1: Okay. So why, I mean, it's amazing to me listening to you tell your story that you've, you know, you just decide to do things and out comes amazing stuff. And why didn't we, why did you feel the need to write your own ray tracing program when you just could have used Zmax or something that's already out there? Was that something not available at the time or I mean it's amazing that you took the time to write a ray trace. cuz you got to keep ray tracing programs need to know all the refractive indices of all the different materials that you make and and things like that. Did you write all that from scratch? I did. Wow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and uh, this is well, why I told you I, I was excited to have this podcast on.
1: Yeah, here. I know, man. This guy's amazing. So so I mean why why not just use Zmax? ZMAX is the commercial version of ray tracing that people use.
0: Right. I didn't have access to ZMAX, but I had access to a program called Oslo LT, which Uh either stands for light or laptop. I can't remember. Um, (laughs) And so it's a stripped down version of, you know, some program that they were running on a mainframe at the time. Um, This was probably 95 or 96. And I tried like hell to use it, but I never felt comfortable with it. Um, I see. And I love to, uh, you know, I love to write software and I love to understand the problem by writing the software for it, among other things. So, I get
1: that. I totally do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's just, I mean, it's just not something. I mean, it's like, you know, I, uh, it, it was kind of reminds me of Isaac Newton, you know, he goes, well, I need to describe all of the stuff I'm seeing in the universe. Let me just invent a mathematics real quick to do it. And out comes calculus. Right. So, so, you know, it's, it reminds me of something, uh, <laughs> that that's just what brilliant people do, I guess, is they just see a problem they need the tools to solve the problem. And so they just invent them as they go along.
0: Which is I don't incredible. know. I, it's more curiosity to tell you the truth. I, I was mm-hmm. just, I'm just curious about kind of everything. And, I beat on something until it gives up or, you know, I change my mind and go off and do something else if I can't get it to give up. So, (laughs) uh, which is the case, you know, probably most of the time, many problems are untractable. Um, um, Okay. You know, so there's, but anyway, I, I, uh, ray tracing program is to tell you the truth. It's not that difficult. You know, there's, there's basically two governing equations. There's refraction and reflection. Yeah,
1: I was, I know, and then you've got a, but and then it's just a matter of the materials and the refractive indices, and I suppose that can be a database of some kind.
0: And that's um, a database you download. I downloaded it from, uh, I don't know. One of the optical glass companies.
1: Sure. Okay. I guess it's not a, so. <laughs> it's
0: actually not such a big deal, and it's fun, and you know, you write an interface for that—a human interface that you can understand. Because my problem with Oslo LT was I never could. I. It was very hard to use, and I didn't like it. Okay. Okay.
1: So. Okay. So yeah, well, I I I still find that amazing. But okay. Well, but I want to just a quick question on the on the the Cdk then. The the or the coma that was that one gets from an uncorrected one is now corrected in your version. What uh, are there any things that your design is vulnerable to that when 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 you're using it for imaging or even visual? Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: What what's not what what do you still get? What optical aberrations do you still get uh, from your design, or do you get any?
0: Well, the, the, the answer is either very complicated or pretty simple. So the simple answer to that is these, these telescopes are, are diffraction limited across a wide field of view. So the answer is, is that they're totally good enough for anything you'd ever want to do with them.
1: That's true. Diffraction limited pretty much says it all.
0: And that's over a flat focal plane. So, you know, the native focal plane, the, the native focal surface of all Cassegrins is curved. So you've got to correct for that too, if you want to use it with a CCD or a you know, piece of film. And you
1: are these these telescopes are all open tube. Then I take it right; they don't have a corrector or anything at the end.
0: That's right. So uh, the corrector plate is it's a nasty piece of business to make a good corrector plate. I struggled a lot with the first ones I made, and. Learned a lot about optical manufacturing in the process. but um, So I used the vacuum pull-down method to make a corrector plate, which was the old way of doing it. Bernard Schmidt uh, used that same method, and I went back to his original work to do it. But these are all open tube, but you can close the tubes if you want with an optical flat. Um, that's an expensive piece of hardware to add to a telescope so
1: it's just another element isn't it and you got to put coatings on it and everything else yeah
0: so and it's expensive and heavy and
1: yeah yeah okay and and big pieces of glass that are you know uh, defect free are quite expensive so yeah i can see why you wouldn't wouldn't do that well um i just want to go back to something you said at the top of the podcast where you were talking about the problem of a wide field Telescope the 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 problem of having a telescope that can let you see big areas of the sky is a hard problem to solve. Um, Why is that? Is it because the optical elements have to be so curved to bring down uh, to bring the light in from such a wide area? Why is that a hard problem?
0: Right. Okay. So it's easy to design optics that have that are perfectly corrected on axis. So, a parabolic mirror is the simplest one, and that's perfectly corrected at all colors uh, at one point, uh, the center of the uh, field of view. When you move away from the center of the field of view, a a parabola has a lot of coma, and coma is simply the first important third-order, as we call it, aberration in a telescope and It grows, you know, pretty bad pretty fast as you move away from the optical axis and it gets worse if the parabola is faster. So you can make an f10 Newtonian that's pretty good over a substantial field of view, but if you try to do that at f3 you've got a horrible bunch of coma uh, off axis within a few millimeters of the center of the ax- axis.
1: And coma is, are these little artifacts that you see that makes your little stars look like little comets, right?
0: Yeah, and in yeah. The Newtonian, the, the tail of the comet would point away from the center of the field of view.
1: Yeah, that's how I always remember a coma comet that way. That's the way i yeah. a little pneumatic for it, so okay. Uh, and so, at some point, these wide field telescopes that are pr- primarily useful for photograph for imaging because your eye isn't going to see a lot of the detail that a wide field would show you, but it would show up really nicely on an imaging field because of the detectors themselves. They need to have they need to be aberration free across that whole area, right? So that's why the correction comes in.
0: Yeah, and there's a few ways of Doing this correction, but the the simplest, in my opinion, is to put a two lens corrector uh, close to the focal plane and optimize the entire telescope uh, as you do that. So the corrected dalcurcum isn't a perfect uh, dalcurcum if you remove the corrector. It's uh, you wouldn't get perfect spots in the center of the field because the corrector itself adds a little bit of what we call <clears throat> spherical aberration. Yeah.
1: Oh, so that that's an important point I guess. If you you can't just take your your, your correction out and have just a normal uh kirkham then it sounds
0: like. That's right. So right. it's it's technically not exactly a corrected Dal kirkham but it's close enough.
2: So Dave, you you ended up with your name on the side of another one of the most popular telescopes out there, not just Plane wave and its design, but also the Celestron Rasa. Um, Got right. your name right there on the side of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the R in Rasa is Roe. Um, so you want to you want to kind of tell that story? How did that come to be?
0: Right. So I I worked with the guys at Celestron from the early two thousands, um, doing many things. One was their what do they call it? Uh, their SkySense, um, anyway, uh, a program that they you, they plate solve, and you know you can uh, move the telescope to the correct position that you wanted to point to. They, I think they call it SkySense. So you worked on that? I actually wrote one of the very first. In fact, it may have been the first all-sky uh, plate solving software. In other words, you don't need to know approximately where you're pointing to get a solution to the plate solve. So
2: you mean the little star sense device
0: star sense. Is that what they call it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That thing for under 400 bucks, it does all the plate solving for you. That device is incredible.
0: Yeah. So I wrote the, basically the core software that actually does the plate match computation uh, for that. So I worked with, I knew the guys from Celestron since the late nineties, Rick, Kedrick, uh, who I talked about previously, and Joe, they both worked at Celestron. Rick was the, I think he was the CTO there. So I worked with Celestron to develop that software. And let me think. So they were always looking for, they love telescopes too at Celestron, um, the guys that I knew. And we were always talking about, you know, what's the best way to do something or another. And I was in their office and they wanted to have a wide field, fast, uh, astrograph. And so I went away and thought about it. And a couple of months later, I went back and talked to Corey, who I think was the chief engineer there at the time.
2: Now the CEO. And,
0: and now he's the CEO, right? Mm-hmm. And we had a long talk in his office about uh, turning a Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope into an astrograph. And I showed him a design that I had come up with, with, again, a focal plane corrector. And we, I wanted to change the shape of the corrector plate, but Corey told me, uh, justifiably so, that he couldn't do that because he had these blocks He's pull down blocks. He had a whole technology to make a specific corrector plate and he, you know, he didn't want to change uh, his blocks to refigure his blocks and all of that, which with good reason, they're extremely oh, yeah, difficult it's a
2: to make complex process watching. I've, I've been through there just on tours, seen their facility and it is, it is a project making those corrector plates.
0: Yeah. It's, it, it, corrector plates are quite interesting problems anyway so I went back and I thought about that and I just I and I realized that well you don't have to change the corrector plate you can leave it as a constant and we could optimize the radius of curvature of the primary mirror to make it, it work which is what I tried and of course it worked and you end up with um, we ended up with uh, what did we do first the 11 so we ended up with the 11 inch f. Two point two, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah, eleven inch, two point two, and it's so that's why the scope is longer than the uh, counterparts for like an Edge HD, right? Because you adjusted the primary.
0: So I I made the primary work with the specific corrector plate I had to work with, instead of adjusting the corrector plate because that's the big problem, you know. Um, and I so I designed a kind of a nice instrument it had a three element corrector it was perfectly corrected across a 42 millimeter field of view and i sent it to the folks at celestron and i didn't hear anything from them for six months or a year and um Corey called me and or I went into Celestron for another reason and I talked to him and he said, you know, we got this guy uh, Ackerman and he took your design, your idea, and he added a fourth element and he corrected it over a wider field of view. And I said, yeah, that that's great. So what did you get? He said, well, we got a 11 inch uh, telescope that's F 2.2 corrected across an amazing 70 millimeter field of view. and. I about fell out of my chair because that's a really beautiful high et instrument, you know. So uh, I took a look at the design and it's beautiful. I mean, I I went in with a good idea and a good design and they made it better. So they called it the Rowe Ackerman for that reason.
2: Yeah, now they have multiple sizes. So have you been involved in the other two sizes, the eight inch and then the 14 inch?
0: I was involved a little bit in the eight inch. Um, they sent me the design and I just sort of verified that it was okay. Mm-hmm. And I helped them with a problem that they were having. Um, it was more of a mechanical issue than anything else, but then I wasn't involved at all in the 14. They just took the idea and they ran with it and they make great stuff. I mean, it's really
2: good hardware. So it was scalable, obviously, then the the legwork had already been done and then they just scaled it down and then back up for the 14.
0: Yeah, basically an optical design is pretty easy to scale, especially if you're already making the corrector plates, right? They were making a 14 and an eight inch corrector plate. And you just take this idea of adjusting the primary, adding a Uh, four element corrector and off you go.
2: So what are your, I mean, are these, these projects, you said it's kind of born from just curiosity and that's really what drives you forward. It sounds like it's been driving you forward a a long time in this hobby um, or even in the profession. What are the things that are most interesting to you? Like if you have a favorite, what, what scope is that? (laughs) Well, oh yeah.
0: You know, I, I love them all. Uh, Is it an impossible question? I talked to Rick today to make sure it was okay to talk about this a little bit, but I designed a very wide field, uh, very fast Cassegrin telescope that I called the Delta Rho. Um, and we are within you know some number of months or, or so of having a working prototype of that. And I consider it a totally beautiful design. It's a it's a 300, 350 millimeter f uh, three, a Kassagrin that's well corrected over a very wide field of view, like seventy millimeter.
2: And I think I think when I came up and I sat with you at Plane Wave like two years ago, um, we were we were talking about a design. Very this may be the same thing. Have you been working on this a long time?
0: Yeah, we've been working. I, I designed
2: it. Uh, years ago.
0: But uh, so I went through all of the calculations. I made sure it was manufacturable. And uh, we, we've we actually kind of, we're in the middle of that project. So I can't tell you when we'll have a prototype. I don't want to discuss the details of how much it will cost or when we'll have it. But I'm, you know, really excited about that telescope. It's It's really a beautiful thing. Yeah, it's and just I like I told you to years ago. On
2: just, just take my money. I want it. <laughs> yeah, I want one too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wanted right, it back likely, then. I still want it today.
0: <laughs> I think you'll, you'll, you'll probably get one before I will.
2: Uh, I'm, I'm going to make sure of it. I'm going to, I'm going to call uh, Rick right after this and be like, I'm buying it today. I need, that. <laughs> I need that. No, that is awesome. I remember when you were telling me about it. Then I was already drooling because it's just like wow I mean the idea alone if that if that can work which you would know better than I do if that can work it is it's a game changer
0: oh it'll work I mean it it, it's a matter of
2: (laughs) I got this solved
0: (laughs) you know it's it's a matter of making sure you understand the manufacturing tolerances when you make optical systems and how you're going to collimate it and so forth
2: right yeah So I don't want
0: to tell. I don't want to discuss any of the details because it's uh, proprietary still because we haven't released it. But that's you know my next big exciting thing. I love the one meter telescope. We've I think we've shipped fifteen of them now. It's a Altaz direct drive beautiful telescope. They are. Uh, I. I developed the direct drive uh, servo system in the early two thousands and. Um, the guys at plane wave, you know, were brilliant in the way they took that, uh, axial flux motor and high res on axis encoders and just turned it into a, a beautiful, you know, piece of machinery.
2: Yeah. Well, you guys, you guys have an unfair advantage. You have the, uh, the Kevin geniuses, both of them. Oh, I have the The two, we have the two
0: Kevins. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I'm close with, uh, with Larry Weatherly, you know, he worked at OPT for a decade and, Um, we still talk all the time and he's, he's out there at plane wave obviously. And so, um, I always tell him, it's like, man, it's almost not fair that you guys have both Kevins that somebody should break that up. It's a monopoly on the Kevins. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think really what it has to do with is we all absolutely love telescopes and astronomy, but those two guys stand, you know, in my mind above everybody else in terms of their technical abilities they're, they're truly great people well i
1: have a question then about um the future because plane wave is a company that strikes me it's got its foot into both the amateur and the professional realm and you guys and you personally have already solved some really uh what are considered some pretty hard problems in optical design and as a as someone who's come from the professional ground based realm, I've noticed that there seems to be when we look at a lot of these the large telescopes that are being built on the ground now, they're going with certain kinds of designs. the the um, what used to be called the uh, LSST, which I think is the Vera Rubin Telescope now, has a has a design that is like un- unlike anything I've seen with with optical elements. It's got concave elements, convex elements, all of it. So that it can see all of the sky uh, several times a week and take images that way. And there's also designs for professional observers to use off-axis telescopes. These are telescopes that don't have a specific focus. They go off the axis and use different optical elements to make, you know, complex, um, almost Individual telescopes that are like in circles and things like that. Mm -hmm. Where do you see the future? Do you? I mean, it sounds like you've solved the problem of wide field, short focal length observing, and and imaging. What's next? What's the frontier beyond that? Is it off axis telescopes? Is it is it something, some hybrid combination of of figures uh, in in an optical plane? What's the future look like to you? What what would what do you think about in that realm?
0: Right. That's a really great question. and I think there's many lines of pursuit that w- lots of people will solve you know various aspects of the uh, design problem, the astrograph problem, and so forth. My particular love uh, for my whole life has been the High Etendue telescope. In other words, the fast, wide field, telescope that gathers the most number of photons that you can possibly gather on your camera and it's great for astrophotography it's great for discovery instruments so uh i'm i'm working on breaking the f2 barrier i want to i want to make it <laughs> full stro-
1: Is it like the sound barrier inviting too because <laughs> you know they have those numbers like that
2: the same well, sonic
1: boom for sure mach 1 mach 2 mach 3 you got f1 yeah. f2 <laughs> except it goes the other way right it goes f4 f3 f2
0: <laughs> right so the you know the rasa is a beautiful f2 um wide field instrument that has a really great you know wide um focal plane when you go beyond f2 when you go faster than f2 um it gets Really hard to do good off-axis correction. So I'm working on ways of, of doing that and seeing where I get. I'd like to get down to you know f1.6 uh, or f1.7, um, with a fifth at least a 52 millimeter well-corrected field of view. And you can do that, but you know, there's mechanical and And customer usage uh, issues uh, with some of these. So, anyway, that's where I'm headed at the moment. I'd also love to build a two meter telescope.
1: Well, to get there, to get to those sub f two focal lengths, and I'm I'm really glad I brought up LSST in this case because what they have an f one18 is their is their prime. They have it's a it's a it's a primary that is eight meters in diameter. It's got two, it's got two figures on the same surface right. on, on the, and on the inner surface, it's, it's, uh it's got an F like 0.8, I think it's a, what's what it says in this diagram here is three, three and a half meters of the 8.4 meters has is an F point three, And then the outer cone of that is an F one. And I guess taken together, it comes out to F 1.8. Do you think about maybe doing that to get to the sub f two level? I mean, this is something that's being done on an eight meter class telescope, So presumably it would work in smaller ones. I don't know. Is that it something would work?
0: That- yeah, you can scale you can scale downward from large telescopes uh, fairly easily. the The issue is is can you make it uh, reliably, you know, you know, good manufacturing, way so that you can make it inexpensive and yeah, it's like two telescopes on the same piece of glass almost. yeah it's quite a difficult problem you know yeah there's there's <laughs> i can imagine what that thing costs right uh, well
1: we're talking yeah i'm sure we're called a couple dozen million here <laughs> i don't know what it is anyway
0: <laughs> so you get the idea you have to make you have to make something that you can make in your shop and test it and uh have it be you know excellent optics at a good price so uh that's probably not the thing you're going to do.
1: Okay. So you're looking, so you're constrained also by being able to afford the thing once you've designed it. But, uh, uh, but it sounds like F2 is, is the, um, is the next barrier, the next frontier then, or sub F2.
0: I would love to go to, yeah, F1.5 if I could get there, but wow. I'd settle for F1.7 <laughs> if I
2: can. Yeah. I mean that's a full stop so that's twice as fast as f2 one one point4 to f2 is a full stop yeah so twice the light gathering power. Is it possible to make a scope as wide as it is long in focal length to do an f1 telescope and have any level of correction?
0: oh yeah there's a t- there's a optical system called the Baker Schmidt I think it is that's f1 point is sorry f0.8 at the focal plane. So, um, but it's one hell of a thing to make. You can look it up. And there's, there's lots of astrographs that have been proposed in the literature that are down at the F1 territory, but you know what? They're just really um, hard to make and very hard to use. Most of them end up with a curved focal plane and so forth.
2: And that's that's what I didn't know, if it was possible to, like, I know, of course, you could do it, but is it possible to get it to where it has the level of correction that people have come to be used to with high-end telescopes, you know, even if it's expensive?
0: Yeah, that, that's, that's the whole game, isn't it? So when I say it's got a 52 millimeter diameter field, I mean, it's diffraction limited, or at least close to it, over that entire field. I mean, wow. we, we can't settle for crummy, you you can call any telescope wide field, but unless it's well corrected, you won't want it, right?
2: Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things that uh, I really respect about, about plane wave is that the information that's put out is conservative, if anything, because like you said, you can all, you can say like, Hey, this has a huge image circle, or this is corrected right in, in quotes, but um, and a lot of companies do. They'll they'll make claims on optics for astrophotography. It's like, oh, well, this has a 70 or a 90 millimeter image circle. But the truth is, like, no, it absolutely does not. Sure, it's putting light through there, but the correction is terrible. Um, stars look awful out out to the edges. You know, with some of these higher end scopes and plane wave is among them, you can actually go wider than I think what plane wave even is stating, and most people wouldn't be able to tell the difference, myself included, um, pushing it a little beyond what is even stated. It's a conservative number.
0: Yeah. So it kind of goes back to our love for perfection. I mean, we talked about the perfect telescope uh, 25 years ago, and because we are amateurs that also did astrophotography and use the telescopes, uh, we enjoy the uh, beauty of having a well-corrected instrument. And you're right. You can use our telescopes actually beyond the stated field of view. The vignetting maybe is more of a limiting factor than the quality of the spots.
1: Wow, that's amazing. So, um, well, is there anything more you want to add there, Dustin? Uh,
2: No, no. We we pushed now, this hour, flew by. Wow, I know. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> right. well, no, Dave, thank you so much for uh, for joining us and, and telling us the story. I knew it was going to be an epic story, um, <laughs> you know. And so, yes. Yeah. Thank yes. you for for uh, you know your contributions to the hobby, the industry, and everything you guys are doing. And I can't wait to see what's next. And I'll be in touch very soon to make sure I buy that thing from you before it's even made.
0: Well, you you call Rick and make sure you yeah. get number one. Okay, oh, he
2: knows I'm going to hound him about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. All
1: right. Well, David Rowe, thank you so much for taking us on this really cool journey down the optical story of, of both Plane Wave and Rasa and just how you got going into into designing and making telescopes. Thank you for your time. Really appreciate it.
0: Man, you're really welcome.
1: Oh, uh, and, and you're welcome anytime on this podcast. So
0: <laughs> absolutely.
1: <laughs> Okay, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, my name's Tony Darnell. Thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.